Hello everyone and welcome to a new episode of Thinking Aloud about film. I'm Jose. I'm Richard. And today we're going to be talking about Fassbinder's Beware the Holy Whore. I've made a project for myself of going through all of Fassbinder's films, or all of the ones I can get, in chronological order. At the same time, there is on movie a series of six really key Fassbinder films. So Beware of the Holy Whore, Love is Colder Than Death, Chinese Roulette, Fear Eats the Soul, The Bitter Tears of Petrolong Camp, and Corral. I thought I'd drag Richard <laughs> into my obsession, uh, <laughs> uh, cover a film that is being screened on movie. So this is all really in, in some ways kind of quite exploratory but I'm delighted to be doing this and wondering what you made of the film, Richard. Yeah, it was, it was interesting to watch it. I'd say I uh, perhaps admired it more than I actually enjoyed it. <laughs> ah. um, I was trying to work out what other Fassbinder films I've seen, and I've definitely seen Fear Eats the Soul when I was a teenager, when I was still at school, I think. When, quite what I found to interest me in Fear Eats the Soul aged, aged 17, but I do remember enjoying it. I think I've seen The Bitter Tears of Petra von Kant, but again, that would have been years ago. I was trying to work out why I'd never seen any other Fassbinder films, and I think he, he's, for such a big name director, because he is a big name in world cinema circles, obviously, I think he's One quite little biggest. seen. In, yeah, but I think he, he, when you compare him to other directors like, I don't know, Truffaut or Goddard or whoever, I think he's not, in the UK at any rate, not shown that much, you know, not revived that much in cinemas or, or on, on kind of art house film channels. Well, um, I think either that's about to change or that has changed. Mm. I think, you know, this retrospective of films on Mubi is an example of it. Yeah, I mean, here are, you know, six films by this director being shown. Arguably not his greatest either. There are three box sets of Fassbinder films of which I'm making my way through them systematically that have uh, recently been released uh, by Arrow. I think there was also a Criterion box set maybe a decade back on his early films. He is arguably the main figure in the new German cinema, you know, that was uh, so much written about in the 90s. I do think you're right in a way that he is, he, he maybe doesn't have the place that he should have or deserves. And I have a theory about that because, you know, I've been watching his, his first films, Love is Colder Than Death and, you know, I'm an American soldier and uh, so on. And I'm just bowled over by them. And I think what, what most surprised me is that here are these films from 1969, 70, 71, that have these extraordinary depictions of homosexual desire and lust and so on and also that depict or dramatize it as more fluid than the gay liberation movement of the 1970s would have it so i think in a way it's it's a body of work that was interrupted by aids yeah so if you think about it corel which i think is his last film came out in 1982. It's, it's certainly his queerest film, yeah? 
you know, that, that incredible poster of Brad Davis leaning against this big cock, which is <laughs> the, the battlements of this castle, right? Like an extraordinary image, obviously from Genet, of, you know, a sailor and completely sexualized. Um, but that film came out just at the moment that AIDS came in. Yeah, 82... 83 is really when AIDS kind of mainstreamed, really. I mean, I think there had been murmurings about of it in 81, yeah, and so on. Mm, yeah. But, uh, and of course, that changed the whole discourse of this kind of labile, mo mobile polysexuality, yeah, that is uh, so prevalent and still so surprising, yeah, that we see in, in Fassbinder. Uh, and of course, what we have now is a kind of a swing of the pendulum, yeah, where so many of the things that Fassbinder dealt with are now kind of accepted wisdom, but he doesn't quite have the trans element that you see in Almodovar, say. He's an odd anomaly and actually a really interesting figure to speculate we don't want to look at like history teleologically, right? That kind of our present is explained as if the past just happened kind of linearly in an uninterrupted fashion, right? I mean, it is kind of useful to think, well, you know, kind of what might have happened to kind of queer representation had there not been AIDS? Because I think Fassbinder points to a direction that was dropped instantly. You know, sex was all of a sudden much more dangerous. Yeah, and I, I guess you could also look at, you know, compared to Derek Jarman, who I, I guess was, you know, operating... Yes. In a similar period, and again, again, I, I think uh, his films were sidelined for a while, and are now coming back into public consciousness. I, th I think again because of the the mainstreaming of some of those ideas. Mm. Though I think Fassbender is different because what you see in Fassbender's early films is he's rooted in theater. Jarman was a visual artist. He ran a theater troupe called Anti Theater, yeah, in Munich. Most of the figures in that troupe play in his films or constantly play in his films. His films are imbued with a kind of a late 60s radical politics. They are about revolution and representation and gender and sexuality and class. I'm curious because I think Beware of a Holy Whore is a masterpiece. Yeah, I was so blown over by it, really. I thought it looked beautiful. And it was very interesting because I have the trailer for it in the Arrow DVD. And the restoration is gorgeous. Yeah, the colors yeah, yeah. are gorgeous. It's such a complex film because it has so many characters. I'm kind of curious to know what you think of someone who hasn't seen a lot of his films. As opposed to me, Fassbinder is one of those directors who I saw... I was 14 in 1976. I saw a lot of the, the films that came out from like 72, you know, to 82, either upon first release or in the repertory, because films that were a bit too early, like The Bitter Tears of Petra Van Kant or Fox and His Friends, you know, actually they were, you know, playing two, three years later still in repertory, right? So actually I saw most of those later films I mean, he was the filmmaker of the moment. The Marriage of Maria Brown, you know, was a huge hit. And Carell, of course. 
I think I didn't have the cultural capital to understand them. I couldn't understand, for example, the extraordinary things he does technically, as we can see in this movie, right? Uh, that are just like a tour de force of filmmaking, right? But also there was something about the way that he represented gay people that scared me. Because in those days, there was such a dearth of representation, I mean, that kind of you were constantly seeking kind of reflections or clues or yeah, as to what the world might have for you. And everything seen in Fassbender scared me. <laughs> it was all so gloomy and sad and despairing and instrumental. I think, you know, in this film, you know, everybody has sex with everybody else of, of any gender, but nobody enjoys it very much. <laughs> yeah, it all feels like power games or... Yes, yeah, it's, it's sexual harassment, it's power games, it's whatever. Yeah, it's it's pretty pretty grimy in that, in that sense. Yes, yeah. I love it now. <laughs> <laughs> so why don't you tell us a story and then I'll give some background. Yeah, I mean, the story basically is a group of people are in spain making a film but for most of the time they're not actually making the film they're sort of sitting around waiting for things to happen you know waiting for the director to arrive waiting for the star to arrive who's who's eddie constantine waiting for the actual film they're going to make the film on to to arrive so a lot of the time they're just sitting around in this hotel lobby you know looking at each other arguing having sex with each other whatever eventually they make a bit of the film i wouldn't say there's a lot more to the plot than that there's obviously a lot more to the film than that but that's that's essentially what's happening i'm assuming from what i've read it's kind of is heavily influenced by the making of one of his earlier films um whitey. so I, I whitey yeah so I, I i guess if you've seen more of the films it, you'll, you will get more out of this uh, but I, I'd say I, I admired it. I think it, it looked amazing, as you say, um, which I wasn't really expecting how glossy it looked. Yes. How, how well, I mean, every every shot looked like a album cover, basically. Actually, two things about that. Manny Farber, you know, the film critic, uh, who was also a painter, talked about Fassbinder's use of colour and compositions in this film, you know, as something that most painters would envy. And the other point I wanted to make is that the cinematographer is Michael Ballhaus, famous German cinematographer who then went to work for Scorsese. It is lit by one of the great kind of late 20th century cinematographers. And obviously those things partly account for the result yeah, that we get. Yeah. And, and you do get these conversations in the film, which, which is, I think, interesting in, in a film about filmmaking. You get a, a lot of conversations about the technicalities of making a film you know they talk about filming a murder scene and how difficult it's going to be to light it and all, all of this kind of thing which is obviously i guess the kind of conversation they're also having while they're making this film so it's kind of, it, it's interesting from that point of view that it's very it's not like i mean the, the obvious comparison i think is day for night which was, was a couple of years later um and that's a very different treatment of a similar kind of scenario there are other films that are more similar. Uh, there's Godard's uh, Le Mépris, Contempt, mm. yeah, with yes, Brigitte Bardot, yeah. where Fritz Lang appears. Uh, there's also Minnelli's, well, two, The Bad and the Beautiful first, and then Two Weeks in Another Town, which is set in Rome and Cina Città during that whole co-production uh, period. Uh, I suppose one can bring Fellini's Eight and a Half into this. But I think this is a film that, to me, brings out 
the power dimension of the filmmaking, yeah, the money, the art, the various kind of people in a particular setting, yeah, it's a setting of like international co-productions. It's meant to be set in Spain. It's actually shot in Sorrento in Italy. Everybody on the set speaks like four or five languages, right? Yeah, you hear Spanish and Italian and German and French and English. But what this film does that the others don't is that all these psychosexual uh, power dynamics include a homosexual dimension or a, bis or a bisexual dimension. Whereas, you know, the other films, it's always like the producer's wife fucking with a star. So this is much more you know, inclusive. Everybody gets to have a bad time. <laughs> Not just the straight people that have a bad time. In this I suppose one. that's true. Though I don't know. I mean, I think for me, one of the rediscoveries of watching Fassbender's films in chronological order is to rediscover Hannah Shigula, you know, whom I just adore. I mean, I think she's... It's so interesting, right? Because, you know, in this film, you have a lot of beautiful women, right? Uh, including Margaret von Trotta, who plays Fassbender's wife. And of course, she's quite beautiful as well. But there is something about presence, about who the camera loves and who it doesn't. And actually, there are all these beautiful women who are quite good. And yet, they don't affect me the way just watching Hannah Shagula speak or move or a tilt of the head. Right, like there is something so erotic and sensuous and mysterious, yeah, about her and about the way her face catches the light, right? Because, you know, she's got a very unusual face in the sense that when you think of faces catching the light in cinema, you often think of cheekbones, <laughs> yes, of Marlena Dietrich, of Catherine Hepburn, of people like that, right? And of course, the thing about Hannah Shigula that's not unusual, maybe I'm making too much of it, but she's got a very round face. Yeah? So she's got like a baby doll face or something. Obviously, has something to do with the way that her face catches the light also, but it's, she's not helped by cheekbones. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. And she, she, of course, turns up in, in Peter von Kant in the, the Francois I was on. Yeah. version of Petra von Kant so she plays the mother of the of Peter von Kant who is clearly based on Fassbinder in in that version and that's very interesting to watch comparing it to this film because in Peter von Kant von Kant is a film director who's supposed to look like Fassbinder and is as in this film is kind of yelling down the phone, trying to sort out co-production money for his next film and all of this kind of thing. It's, it's a very, very similar scenario. Yes. The money is central to this film. The director thinks he's got a co-production deal with Spain. The Spanish money falls out, but all the commitments with Spain are still there. Uh, he's got to put his own money into it. Very interestingly, the title of the film that they're making is Patria Muerte which in Spanish means fatherland or death. Yeah, country or death, yeah? Which is such a fascist slogan, actually, you know, of, of the Falange, yeah, in Spain, right? It's like you die for the fatherland, right? A lot of that is what the film both critiques and embodies. 
all those sexual power games all have to do with power. The director is actually sexually obsessed with this man who's married, yeah, but who's kind of sleeping with him, yeah, for money, I suppose, or for position, really. He assumes that everybody can be bought. Yeah, on the other hand, he's quite didactic about his art, yeah, and also dictatorial about all of the people who surround him. I just think it's extraordinary, actually. And one of the things that's extraordinary is the way that it's dramatized. So the first half seems to be all about waiting for things to happen, and the second half is the filming itself, yeah? The first half was languid. It was deliberately slightly dull because nothing is happening and they're just talking about nothing happening. And it's preceded by this sequence where one of the characters recounts at very tedious length the plot of a goofy cartoon in a very kind of unfunny way. I think that's a good signifier of what he's trying to do with this film. You know, he's 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 trying to show you the longers and the um, the, the the hanging around. You start off thinking, what, what's, what, what is this? Nothing's happening. Um, who are these people? And then you realise, actually, that's the point. You're not supposed to know who they are at that point. You're not, you're, the point is that nothing's happening. And he's showing you nothing happening, but he's showing you it in a very interesting way, I think. Well, two things here. First, it reminds me, I don't know if you've seen the recent Hugh, Hugh Grant kind of rant. Very funny. Where he says, you know, in the 80s, when we used to make films, we'd all hang around the set, kind of drink, sleep with each other, <laughs> yeah. start affairs, right? Now, everyone's on their phones. <laughs> so the film has a little bit of that, yeah? Like everyone's hanging yeah, around yeah. and they're drinking, you know, and they begin with affairs with each other, right? But actually, there's a lot more than that. So when Eddie Constantine comes in and he's the big international star, Everyone excludes him and so on, right? And then, of course, Hannah Shagula later begins an affair with him. What, what you have also is a mixture of the cast and the crew. So you realize the crew is at least as important as the cast, yeah, as the main figures. Actually, the cast are really quite minor in terms of, yeah, except for the star, in terms of the power yeah, in fact, you don't see... You know, most of the people you see are the crew rather than the cast, apart, apart from Eddie Constantine. Mm. The actor who tells that goofy story at the beginning of the film, by the way, is Werner Schreuter, yeah, who is another of those big names of new German cinema. Okay. Also queer, uh, directed opera, and yeah, and so on, right? And actually, um, one of the things that Adrian Martin points out is that in the distribution of the cast, there are 12 directors. Yeah, people who were right, either directing right. films like Werner Schroeter at that point or who would go on to direct films like Uli Lomo or Margaret von Trotta, yeah, who became one of the big yeah, directors of German cinema and one of the, almost at that period, very few women who were directing major films. Yeah, So I think that's interesting, Yeah, that kind of the group he surrounds himself with yeah, yeah. is... is yeah, kind of, you know, people who are very interested in cinema. What did you make of the the sexual bits, the coercions, the money, the roles, the, yeah? I, I thought it was really interesting because, as, as you say, it, it's it's this kind of polyamorous stuff that's going on. It's kind of, you know, he the, the director, as you say, the director is, is sleeping with both 
both sexes for different reasons, I think. And, and you know, he's, he has this mistress who he's, you know, sleeping with her for money. Um, so it's kind of, and then he's sleeping with other people so that they, who, who want to sleep with him so that they can progress. And so, so essentially he, he's, he's at both ends of that kind of sex for prestige kind of thing, isn't it? But his desire, yeah, the person he wants is that straight man who's married. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. There's also a difference between what you do and what you want. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. there's, a, you know, there's this uh, line that recurs throughout the film that you don't know whether it's a line of the film within the film, except it's also the last line in the film, which is, I won't be happy until he's completely destroyed. The straight guy says that over and over again, sitting in the car, and then it turns out to be a line in the film. Yes. So what do you make of that in relation to the film as a whole? What is it referring to? I don't know. I mean, I guess it's referring to the director, but I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure either. I thought it might refer to, you know, to the loved one or the wanted one or the one who doesn't reciprocate, or, but I wasn't sure of that. And what did you make of the last quote that ends the film uh, by the Thomas Mann quote? It was something like, we mustn't get so busy thinking about life that we forget to live it. They're too busy not making the film to actually have fun. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I, I suppose, you know, the last thing I want to say about the film, which I found it thrilling, yeah, so was actually really the staging, yeah, the mise-en-scene of it. There's a shot where Uli Lomel, who plays an assistant director, comes in with glasses, yeah, to distribute to people, you know, and just the way that scene is staged, you know, you're introduced to characters, they come in through a doorway, he goes up the stairs, you see another stairs, and the scene kind of follows him for two minutes or more. And I think that, that opening sequence in the hotel foyer where the yeah, the characters are all grouped in twos and threes and you just see individual shots of those and then you gradually try and piece together how that room works. It's, it's very, very, very interesting. The other line that I thought was key was when they're talking about filming the murder scene. Um, and he's the director is talking about how he wants to do it as a really long shot, as a sort of dolly shot, and not do a lot of quick cuts. He says, if we do, if we do quick cuts, the audience won't realise how long it takes to actually murder somebody. And I think that's kind of what he's trying to do with the film, right? It's sort of create this kind of languid atmosphere so that the audience knows how long it takes and how dull it can be to make a film. Yeah. Um, uh, and I think that's the same scene where earlier Eddie Constantine is asked to kill her with a karate chop, right? And he says, no, I can't kill someone with a karate chop, right? And then you see him killing someone, with a, killing her with a karate yeah, chop. Yeah, yeah. Though it is no longer the producer's wife who's playing that role of someone else. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's interesting seeing Constantine in this. I, I, what's weird about him is, certainly in the UK, you really only see him in things like this or in Alphaville where he's being cast because he's like, because he's in quotes, Eddie Constantine. Mm. You know, he's, he's Lemmy Caution. And that, that. Yes. Whereas those actual, the actual films that he's well known for on the continent were... were as far as I know, not really shown over here. Yeah, I think I've only ever seen gangster films, really. Yeah, I've only ever seen one kind of proper Eddie Constantine film, which is like where he's he's actually in a crime drama rather than being cast in an art house film for irony. 
which was this, this uh, 1958 film called Passport to Shame. Um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a British film, talking picture show every now and again. It's, it's a great film. It. It's, this, it's directed by Alvin Rakoff, who's a TV director, but the cinematographer was Nicholas Rogue. Um, it's got a drug-induced dream sequence. It's it's a crazy film. At one point, it was made on a very low budget. At one point, the lights went out in the studio and they just carried on filming. It's that, it's that kind of film. And Bertrand Tavernier's was it a personal journey through French cinema or something like that. He talks of his admiration for these Lemmy Caution films. Yeah. Yeah. How, yeah. how as a child he loved them and he would go to see them and how actually his admiration for them has continued. You know, and yeah, I, yeah. I'm sure Eddie Constantine is a big reason for that. He's, he's kind of almost reptilian in this. Yeah, his eyes and his stillness and how, you know, every glance is really meaningful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Also, Rosano Braxi appears at the end where they're all in the terrace kind of drinking champagne. Yeah. A very elderly kind of almost unrecognizable Rosano Braxi just happens to walk through the terrace. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. really two big stars of former eras uh, are evident uh, here. Yeah. Um, I think what I loved about it was the look, the feel, the sexual power dynamics, right? And the, the, the cinematic virtuosity. Well, Fassbender was born in 46. This film is 71. What is he? 25? 20, 25, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's... And he'd made what? Say, his first film was 69, is that That's right, right. yeah. And he'd made five films in those three years, I think. What, no, I, I think it's more like 10 or 13. A lot of them were made right. for television. I read somewhere that between November 69 and November 70, he directed 10 films. I think it's his entire career because he died. Well, Carell was his last film in 82. 82 so, it's only, so it's only like, what, 12 year 12, 13 career? years and he made 44 films. Yeah, that's incredible. It is incredible. Yeah. And I think this is an incredible film that can stand alongside the classic films about filmmaking like Day for Night and Contempt and Two Weeks in Another Town and Eight and a Half and Broken Embraces, which I would add to this list, actually. I was incredibly impressed with it. It's a discovery for me. I admired it. I think I, I would probably not recommend this as your first Fassbinder film but it wasn't my it's my first fast the film for like 40 years <laughs> uh, i probably yeah i probably would start with something else because which would give you more context right because he, he's making a film about the making of his own films so if you you watch some of his earlier films first you will understand more of what you're getting at i was surprised by how good it looks i because i as i said seen um fear eats the soul on a I, i'm pretty sure it would have been a channel 4 tv showing in early mid 80s and it didn't look great i mean it was you know crappy tv quality and i'm sure it actually looks a lot better watching it on movie i, I probably will watch it and, and um it I, I wasn't prepared for how 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 glossy and how how just how, how well filmed this is you know, how, how how good it looks and say everything everything looked like it could have been an lp cover from a, some lost German 19, late 1960s folk rock group, you know. <laughs> well, I don't want to. I don't want to lure you into <laughs> my obsession with Fassbender, but it might be a good idea to do another podcast on Fear Eats the Soul, 
I think that would be interesting, yeah, to, to yeah, compare yeah. your feelings about it now to your earlier viewing. And also maybe now you've also seen all that heaven allows and so on and would come to it from a, in a slightly different That's way. true, because at the point I'd seen it, I, I would never have seen a Douglas Sirk film or even, to be honest, known who Douglas Sirk was. was. So. Yeah. So, so let's do that. Let's do that for the next Yeah, time. yeah. Uh, in the meantime, I highly recommend it, and I highly recommend this whole series of films uh, that are being screened uh, in movie. If you like them and want to pursue it further, the Arrow box sets are amazing. And thank you very much for listening. I'm Jose. I'm Richard. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.